Hello guys, welcome to a brand new episode of The Film Angle. My name is Chris. And I'm Alex. And we've got some really big movies to talk about uh, this week. We're fully into award season now. We are. We are. Two, two big movies about movies. Yes, it feels like we've been getting not just these two movies, but it's been a lot of this the last year, a lot of rose-tinted glasses. Um, One of these picks is a lot more romantic in its approach to how its seat looks at the past, and the other is just downright absolute head-spinning. Yeah, one's like a therapy film, and the other is like a university dissertation uh, with a whole (laughs) load of drugs and sex Anxiety. and rock <laughs> Babylon was a movie that we knew for quite some time. It had its US release quite a while ago, uh, just being released in the UK. Very divisive. Um, mm. You either loved it or you hated it, which to me sparks a lot of intrigue. I love a movie where I go in and I know I'm not going to be subdued to the critical opinion. I, I I'm going to be going in with a fresh mind, and but it does does have a little added effect that I'm complete sucker for Damien Chazelle. So far, I've been a really big fan of his work. Um, his movies, Whiplash, La La Land, and First Man, especially, have been really really strong for me. So this was number one most excited film for me um, for for some time. It's like the second one of Damien Chazelle's films, which kind of you went. Eh. Is this is this gonna be any good? Like, uh, first man was just you know Neil Ar- the Neil Armstrong biopic until you actually saw it, and then you were like, oh, there's so much going on, and this is so yes. good. And then Babylon, especially over here in the UK, like the advertising campaign was like, this is the party movie, like it's it's Wolf of Wall Street, but in the twenties, um, which it very much isn't. Maybe for like the first thirty minutes, um, but it's a lot more kind of introspective film a lot of very critical of kind of like the hollywood system but as well as but as well as like just absolutely adoring kind of the innovation and entertainment that that, that's come from it um and being almost at like odds with itself on, on how to feel about that um yeah really really interesting that it was kind of advertised that way and that actually is a lot more kind of thoughtful uh, yes, it has its crazy moments. Like there's enter- there's a lot of entertaining, high stakes, uh, crazy emotion going on, mm-hmm. um, crazy editing, and 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 you know, insane kind of sequences which you haven't really seen in terms of like what you're watching people do. Uh, yeah. But uh, <laughs> uh, you know, people eating rats and shit and peeing on people and elephants taking shits on people um yeah lots of interesting stuff going on <laughs> <laughs> yeah i can see why they, did, they didn't market it the way the movie actually is because the movie is a love letter to cinema and is that something that the general populace really wants to see if they really knew what was on this movie's mind i don't know if they'd be coming out in their droves as much they really do want that fully you know screamy wolf of wall street um you know, nail biting experience, which this actually kind of is. I, I you know, it, it manages to be a crazy sort of rip roaring ride at the same, as the same time as being something that has substance, and that's a really marvelous feat to achieve, considering that the movie's three hours ten minutes long. 
you're 20 minutes into the movie and it is wall to wall, you know, action shots of, of dancing and debauchery and quick takes and extravagant camera movements. Yet it never gets exhausting. It, it you, You're swept up for the whole ride and the movie feels like a two hour movie. It's it's um it's pretty big achievement. Yeah, it's the exact same length as Avatar The Way of Water. And as <laughs> if you listen to our Avatar review uh, episode, um, I think we both spoke about how exhausted we were in pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I did not feel the same way. Maybe it has something to do with such a big loud screen that we saw Avatar on um, with the 3D. And obviously, mm. I, I don't know about you, but I, I didn't see Babylon in IMAX. But um, yeah, no, it... it, it it sped along and I was enjoying every second. Um, I wasn't waiting for it to end or anything. I think when you're seeing something like Avatar, you know, all due respect, it's visually a very important movie and something that, you know, I will definitely be supporting the Oscars for visual effects because it can't be beaten in that regard. But in terms of machinations of the storyline and the way that movie functions, you're very, very aware of where you always are in that movie. You know, you're in this part of the film that an X amount of things need to happen before you get to the end. So you're constantly aware of the passage of time. Babylon has exists in its own time. You do not know what's going to come around the corner next. It has a a non-traditional structure to it completely. It feels like you're actually watching a pretty, a pretty robust director's take instead of a theatrical release, um, which is quite interesting. You know, yeah. I wonder what the director's cut will be like eventually if that ever if that ever comes out. <laughs> That'll be like a four hour epic. But yeah, it's it's got a lot of things to say on its mind. Um, I'm not saying the movie's perfect. Uh, it has definitely its stronger moments and some moments that are a bit more throwaway. But whenever it really sticks a landing, it it, it kind of resonates with you. And there are some certain motifs and scenes that I just can shake for you know the last sort of week or so it, it's it's really stuck with me yeah yeah definitely i i think there's a lot of um kind of especially from brad pitt's character kind of that look at like what what happens when you get to the end of the line um what happens when you're not interesting anymore essentially when you're yeah. not the hottest thing in hollywood and how hollywood just spits you out um and can i just say it, he is just i think he does some phenomenal work in this movie I think he was good. I didn't think I I didn't think he was the best part of the film though, personally. Mm. But I, I, I mean, think... maybe I'm a hypocrite because I think like Brad Pitt. When I watched this, I was just like, oh, he's just doing his Brad Pitt shtick. Yeah. Um, and you could definitely say the same about Margot Robbie because she's doing the crazy Jersey uh, yes. stuff that she's been doing for a little while now. But I thought I thought Margot Robbie was the. <sighs> Between Margot Robbie and is it Diego Calva? Yes. Um, who's who plays Manny Torres? He's practically unknown, I think, to me. Um, mm-hmm. I think he's done some television. Yeah. Yeah, I think he was in Narcos. Um, I I think between the two of them, they were had incredible performances. And I know Margot Robbie's doing the stuff that she's done for Harley Quinn there, but there was so much more sadness underneath the craziness and. I don't know. I just I thought she was absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal in the role. <laughs> <laughs> I I think that's a a thing between both her and the Brad Pitt Jack Conrad character. They are both, 
you know, there's this facade that the first movie carries, you know, um, with the parties and the exuberance, but there's an underlying melancholy to both of them, a fear of irrelevance. And I think, I think especially Pitt plays Mm -hmm. into this really, really well, where, you know, he is doing the once upon a time in Hollywood Tarantino esque caricature in the first half of the movie. But once the irrelevance starts to kick in and, he starts to kind of realize the pattern that he's getting himself into the being irrelevant in in the film world and the and the sort of end of the talky era he leans into the melancholy in a really subtle way and i th- i think that's something that can't be really overlooked i think that to achieve that subtlety in a movie that is just always loud always screaming at you um i think is is really is pretty interesting work from Brad Pitt yeah, I think maybe you're right. Maybe maybe actually he is doing a very similar thing to Margot Robbie here where he's doing the kind of performance you've seen Brad Pitt do before, but with a lot more sadness. <laughs> you know, there's a lot more going on underneath the mm. facade. Um, yeah, maybe maybe I was harsh just to say he was good. He's he's very good. He's very good in this. Um, but I, I, just, I just thought the whole film was great. There's just so much so much going on. Um, it's It's weird how it kind of is multiple different films in one like like you know the party movie the hollywood movie the kind of potential biopic nature of it to um uh what's what's the film uh singing in the rain um as well as like a thesis yeah as well as like a thesis as to like the technology of hollywood and innovation and and the beauty of cinema It's, it's, it's like this very strange film that shouldn't work, but but really does, and then even uh, dips into kind of Mulholland Drive Lynch territory with um, yes, when Toby Maguire's gangster character turns <laughs> up, which I must say his character got a laugh in my cinema just just for appearing. As soon as he turned up, everybody's just kind of chuckled to themselves. Of um, course, of course, and it's- he has a. That whole sequence in the movie is kind of like it is so, sort of under the silver lake, mixed with like an adult version of Hufri and Roger Rabbit. It's like it's <laughs> it feels like a complete you know it's a it's a fun sort of detour that is sort of really unnerving. I mean, like I I felt like I was in the shoes of the the Manny character where I'm being like led into the cesspool underbelly, and that's a really big thing about like. That's really true because what ba- this movie Babylon is based on is the sort of myths and legends of Hollywood, the things mm. that the the things that might have happened, the things that did happen, um, the ambiguity of the exuberance that people lived, and that is a really good example of like the myth of Hollywood, like what kind of seedy things people were doing, um, exploiting other people or exploiting their own yeah. fantasies and and disillusions and everything. Um, I thought that was really fun. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, being a really like sweaty palm, um, twenty minutes as well. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 the collateral damage of Hollywood, isn't it? The early days when there were no rules and everybody was just being exploited um, for the sake of, mm. I guess, cheap entertainment. But does this movie like? Do you feel like you could have your real? hand on what the plot is of this movie i mean it really just focuses on these three characters they're sort of you know in tandem they are in each other's general awareness in areas some of them have you know especially the margot robbie character and the uh and the diego calva character are very much interlinked in their plots um they are yeah they get their like dreams come true 
storyline, whereas mm. Brad Pitt's very much at the end of his dreams come true, and now I'm waking up. Exactly. And it's funny that it leans so heavily on Singing in the Rain, because that's Singing in the Rain is one of my favorite films of all time, and it really is one of those movies that really got me into the technicolor sort of era of, of movie musical and made me fall in love with it. I just like Damien Chazelle obviously is obsessed with the movie here. And it, it it's so interesting the the pit character, the way he transitions into, into the talkies by not transitioning. It's, it was a really sad era in Hollywood because I, the people of his stature, those people who were the A-list actors back in the twenties, they really, really struggled. I mean, a lot of them had to auction their mansions all their belongings, and then sort of became nobody's afterwards. It was a real sort of, you know, six, seven, eight year period of real just like celebration and exuberance only to being thrown away like yesterday's newspaper. And it's really sad to, to witness that. I think the scene that really, really stands out is when him uh, and Jean Smart, are, she's like the, the newspaper journalist who kind of is involved throughout this movie she's always in the background we always see her she's kind of like a background character and she writes this really like bad piece on him really she she writes that oh has has uh jack conrad still got her or is he out of the picture now and he confronts her in her office and she kind of just breaks down his his whole character arc really she just saying well you know your time is over but you'll be dancing with the ghosts and the angels of the past and i've always really that was a really beautiful way of putting it, really, that it's nothing you can do right now. Your time is over. It's not that you're bad. It's not that, you know, your voice doesn't transition onto the talky screen. It's just that, you know, this is the end of the year and your ticket's over, buddy. And that's a really that's a really sad thing. Um, and it's, it's horrible that you should feel sad for people who've lived such extravagant lives and have such privilege. But it taps into the, the whole romanticism of Hollywood. We, we, we really do root for these characters. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's quite a powerful monologue delivered by Gene Smart there. One that kind of could really go down the corny route. Um, but I, I think she delivered it in such a way that it's quite a, a moving piece. And even just made me like, I, I don't know if you get this when you watch old films, but there is an element of like, everybody I'm watching here is dead. Um, yes, and I think yes. to describe it as like dancing with ghosts, I thought that was a really <laughs> kind of interesting yeah. way to 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 put it. I guess you know the film is about legacy in in some ways as well. At the end of the day, well, she's also providing him a bit of comfort too. She's like, well, you know, maybe in five years' time you might not be relevant anymore, but it comes around. Cinema is such an important thing, and people. She's basically predicting what the reality we're living in now. People will be watching your movies 100 years from now and you'll be resurrected and you'll be like a god, a privilege that most other people on this planet don't have. You will always be revered and well-regarded and celebrated for having a moment and in a way that you you should be grateful for that. I think that was quite profound and something that I haven't seen really articulated in a film before. Um, So yeah, I, I really enjoyed that part of the movie. But I think the thing that really carries over the film in general but the real sort of thing that stays with you is the chaos it is a it is just a chaotic ride um the part from the party at the beginning um is so so over the top and really that's the thing that demon giselle does so well 
I was talking to you about this the other day. He trains you how to watch his movies. Mm. You think you think about La La Land opens up with this big, massive, you know, swirling musical number on a, on a highway where it really tells you, right, okay, buckle up here. You're about to watch a big movie musical. And you're either in or you're out. And it's the same thing with First Man. It has a really, really intense, emotionally locked down opening scene um, where a, a flight mission goes wrong. And yeah. it's it's really intense. Babylon is exactly the same. <laughs> uh, it is, in its own way, it is it is shitting on you. <laughs> it, yes. The, the, there is, it starts off, the fir- one of the first shots of the film is an elephant literally shitting on the audience. Um, yes. So, I, I, and, but you're right. It, it teaches you like, it, uh, you know, you've, you've got, you've got, it's, it's dirty Hollywood, but don't be afraid to laugh. It's still funny. Exactly. Exactly. And, and provocation is, I always think is a really necessary thing in film. I, I think I like to be provoked. I like to be, I, not that this film provoked me. I've seen a lot worse than this, but I, it excites me that general audiences, you know, will get the chance to be confronted with, uh, an aspect of Hollywood that they're not necessarily used to seeing and seeing how audiences respond to that. I really enjoy, I've been really enjoying reading general reviews online, which really range from the one out of 10 disgusting to the yeah. 10 out of 10. I fell in love with this thing. Um, well, I think maybe it's the, the ending, which maybe blurs the lines of like, was, was all the death and the, the de- debauchery. Was it worth it? for for film and i think the the end kind of says yes um (laughs) yeah and maybe that's kind of blurred but maybe i almost i I don't know if i saw it that way i almost saw it as like look how great cinema is but we do need to acknowledge how we got here potentially it's it's sort of an interesting perhaps companion piece to the film we talked about you know the other week tar where it, it's really in conversation with itself. Is the art worth the mishaps and the unfor- misfortune and the, all the emotions and turmoil to get to the end? And um, it's an interesting debate that will just always be carrying over as long as cinema exists, I think. It's, it's one of those art forms that is just so... There's so much at stake um, to make something, you know, that, that's, that's beautiful or powerful. You know, even if it's from a financial point of view or just from general involvement, there's so many people of various backgrounds involved that it is just a mess. And whenever it comes together, it comes together. But yeah, we do need to acknowledge that there is a lot of turmoil that goes into there. And you're you're watching the 1920s where, you know, they're just figuring this stuff out. I mean, the, the scene where Margot Robbie um, is shooting her very first talkie, um, mm. On, and it's this extended scene that goes on for about 15 minutes. One of the best ca- scenes it is, of the film. I 100% agree. And everything is just going absolutely crazy. Um, the stage is too hot. Um, the guy who's recording the sound is is going crazy because the sound, the microphone's not working. She's talking too loud. Um, She's not in the right spot. <laughs> no, a, a guy literally dies in a hot box because... He keeps keep, they keep throwing him back in there because they really really don't want to miss the shot. Yeah, the um, camera's in a box because the camera makes too much noise, <laughs> which is going to be picked up on the microphone. People keep walking into the stage. <laughs> yeah, it, it is really good. That that's like that's your full Wolf of Wall Street chaos 
um, moment there. But it really, really works. And then you've got this opening, there's got this scene um, about 20 minutes into the movie where then this big open plane where they're shooting about 30 movies back to back from each other. And because there's no, obviously there's no sound in those days, you didn't have to worry about being noisy. So you could shoot all these things back to back. You could shoot a jungle movie next to, um, you know, a, an African epic film from, from historical Egypt or anything. And, and they both wouldn't blend into each other, but it's just people yelling at each other, the chaos, and they're making 30 movies at once. Hopefully one of them sticks. And that's yeah. kind of how these movies were made back then. You know, I, I think there's so much less at stake, but it was just they were churning these things over and over and over again. And it was a really do or die situation. I thought the movie captured that perfectly. Um, yeah, it, it's it's what sticks with me at the end of the day. I think Giselle is still on a winning streak for me. Um, 100%. I absolutely love this film. Um, not as good as First Man, though. I still think First Man is my favorite of all his films. I, I absolutely adore that film. I completely agree. I completely agree. First Man is still his number one. But yeah, I, I think he... It's surprising. All of his movies are rife with tension. I think La La Land is the most sort of laid back and most sort of gentle, but it has its moments too. Um, but yeah, I mean, this guy's like... He's in his, what, late 30s now? And we've got still so much to see from him. So hopefully, you know, this wasn't as big a bomb in the box. Yeah, hopefully this didn't feel so much in the box office that, you know, maybe he'll have to downsize. But I think it's amazing that a filmmaker on his fourth big major outing was able to make something so big. And, you know, this is a movie that comes out from a director who's been doing this 40 years and gets to make his his big, you know, (laughs) $300 million budget movie that flops. So... Kudos yeah. to Giselle for doing that so early in his career. Yeah. He was he was given a lot of money, and like you said, it feels like they released a director's cut, um, and that's not a bad thing. Um, I I was completely happy with everything in this film. Also, just want to say as well, um, they didn't reveal like the full cast uh, in the adverts either. Obviously, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie were the big selling points. Diego Calva, um, mm-hmm. a newbie for me, thought he was brilliant. Um, didn't know Jean Smart was in this. She's great. But another yes. person who I thought was brilliant in this, Flea, from the Red Hot Chili oh, Peppers. Yeah. Now, we've seen Flea in things before, usually very minor stuff. Um, I thought he was really good. I didn't even recognize him as Flea. It wasn't until like one of his later scenes where I was like, that's Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Like He was really good in this. <laughs> yeah, he, he kind of plays the, the bouncer kind of security guy heavy man doesn't he he yeah, yeah. he's he, he's pretty good too yeah it was some surprising like it is unconventional casting in this they put like olivia wilde at like 10th bill in this movie and she's like in it for a blank of a second yeah I, I and that was another person who was just like is that is that olivia wilde oh my god <laughs> <laughs> no it's uh, it it's it's clearly damien chazelle's you know well i'm gonna have to just blow it all here and uh, you know they've given me the money. They're not going to say no. Uh, it's it's now or never. Uh, <laughs> I doubt he'll get a budget like this again. Um, but thank God he did it for Babylon. Yeah, definitely catch Babylon. It is and on the biggest screen possible. I think this would be a disservice to watch this at home. You probably find yourself flicking on your phone. You need to be wrapped up in the chaos of this thing. So please go out and watch this movie. Needs support. <laughs> I know. Because Chazelle is, I think he's hemorrhaging money on this thing, but it is a really big ride of a movie. So please, please check it out and let us know what you think. 
and a transcendent cinema experience where you, there's a lot of shots of people in cinemas and you kind of catch yourself going like, ooh, I'm part of something big here. Yes, of course, of course. Even if there's I... only two people in your screen. <laughs> Um, another big movie we caught up with was The Fablemans, which we, it's the second movie in like the last two months we've got to see together, which is something that really rarely happens. But, you know, we've, it's, it's been great. I like to see movies with you, Alex, as, as much as possible. Um, the Fablemans has been something, you know, we discussed that has been close to our hearts for some time because we're big fans of Spielberg. And this is a movie that was really, really anticipating, um, Really curious just to see if he leaned into the sentimentality of his childhood or whether there was a bit more of an honest discussion happening, a little bit more of a self-critical eye happening. Mm. Um, I think we got a bit of both from this movie. Yes. Yeah, I know when I came out, I said it's still very sentimental uh, Spielberg, but I, I wonder if maybe sentimental isn't the right word for the film. I wonder if it's it's this is this is Spielberg's nostalgia, really. And it's mm-hmm. not a nostalgia that everybody can relate to specifically, but I, I think you and I, as as big film lovers, kind of really, really, really dug this. Um, obviously, different era, different different films, different different childhood, but there was a lot going on here that that just kind of like just made you just I don't know. It it, it was very Spielberg, it's- but at the same time, it was probably more honest uh, mm. an honest spielberg than we've than we've seen before yeah i i think i know i understand what you mean with you know this isn't necessarily on paper a completely relatable story but the movie is all about his family dynamics at the end of the day it's about the father and the mother relationship especially as well as how that reflected on him and how that you know sort of drove him to sort of become his own person and kind of decipher his family's history. And that is something that's really, really important in this movie. It's, it's very, very reliant on the performances. Um, and I think a really unspoken hero of this movie is Sammy Fableman himself, Gabriel LaBelle. I think I haven't heard a lot of like talk about him, but he is somebody who the movie actually rests on his shoulders. He is the main character in this film. And I think he does, such a really great job channeling um, Spielberg, but he does it in such an intelligent way where yeah. there's so much anxiety, there's so much drive, all these different emotions are going on whilst balancing this intricate relationship with his mother and father, which is constantly evolving on screen. So I, I, I thought he did an amazing job. I think I think maybe he didn't or isn't getting the, the kind of love that... Um, that we see, you know, Michelle Williams and Paul Paul Dano getting, and I think that's because their mm. performance are very showy. Whereas Manny, the character of Manny, like you say, Gabriel LaBelle, is he's the documentor. He he's he he's very much. I would say for two thirds of this film, he's more of a, a viewer, and mm. obviously that leans into the filmmaking and his kind of his skill is the fact that he he can take images, put them together in such a way that evokes emotions in the people closest to him and 
it's not until maybe the third act where he actually gets a bit more to play with. And he's very much just a kind of fly on the wall, I would say. A very visible fly on the wall, mm. but a fly on the wall nonetheless. I think it's really crucial that he is an observer the first two thirds of the movie because that really informs yeah. who the character is in the, on the final third. And he really becomes himself and starts to really gain a voice. But the whole the whole movie, just again, evoking Tar again, is about control. Um, the movie opens up with him going to the cinema for the very first time with his mother and father. And it's like the 1940s. And they're going to see the, is it the 40s or the 50s? The movie starts, I think it's the 40s where they're going to see the greatest show on earth, which is the big car scene, train, you know, train wreck scene, which is something yeah. that is quite interesting. That It's like, it's not something that Sammy is fully like absolutely wowed by. He is actually both kind of traumatized by it and curious by it. So the way he sort of, his mother, Mitzi, who's very artistic, it, the movie kind of early on sort of tells us that his mother is the artistic one and his father's very science oriented. They're both kind of polar opposites, but they kind of complement each other in a weird way. Anyway, Mitzi kind of recognizes that Sammy is traumatized by this experience and sees that Sammy, by getting him a train set, can control um, the trauma of what happened by reenacting the scene and by shooting it. And it's almost like he has this con- con- control and this conception of what happened and can look at it from a different angle at his own pace. So that was a really interesting way instead of the, you know, being like, sorry to bash on it, but like a Kenneth Branagh Belfast sort of situation where it's just, Oh, the magic of it all. Isn't it so wonderful? There's a little bit more, yeah. there's always more depth going on under the layers here. It is a showy movie. I think that you're right. I think Michelle Williams, uh, especially gives a very, like very heart on her sleeve performance, which I, you know, I actually think really matched the tone of the movie really well. I, she is, I consistently I'm reminded that she is one of the greatest actors alive right now. And when she's given the right material, I think she leans into the the head and the clouds aspect of that character so well and gives delivers moments of real sucker punch um, and really kind of coasts Sammy on this sort of journey that he's on. I, I, I thought she was terrific. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did like her. Do I think she overdid it sometimes? But then again, like Spiel, Spielberg's the master. He wouldn't have let her do it if she wasn't truly channeling mm-hmm. a character based on his mother. So it's difficult, isn't it? Um, I sometimes... think as well because Paul Dano's character is so much more introverted. And I think they're so much more diametrically opposed to each other in terms of their just in terms of their volume and how animated they are. Um, yeah, no, and they are supposed to be like the opposites that attract, aren't they? They, mm-hmm. he's he's the science nerd, and she's the she's the artist dreamer, um, and they they see life in a very different way, in 100%. you know, in a very kind of on the nose but well done opening scene where they're both trying to describe to him what cinema is, or like the movie that they're going to see, and Paul Dano's. Uh, character is very well it's 24 frames a second it's a it's a picture <laughs> it makes your head think that it's moving it's all projected and she's like movies are dreams they're dreams and yeah. uh, you, you get those two different sides which make up make up the man who is Spielberg and that's it I this movie isn't it's not saying everything that happened in this movie is factual this is I'm only changing the character's name 
you know, the clues in the title, Fable Men, you know, this movie is sort of like saying, right, okay, this is sort of evoked by my my childhood and my experiences, but I'm also the unreliable narrator here. I'm romanticizing this. You know, I think he's fully acknowledging that. And I think, you know, through pain and turmoil, they're probably exaggerated experiences, but I think it's a real sort of love letter to his parents and a real kind of way for him to understand them because, you know, it's no secret that Spielberg's been quite open about this, that he's had, you know, he's openly had issues with his parents in the past. And this has been, like you said, a real therapy movie for him, which is, like you said, a, a lot of movies we're getting like this at the minute, which is it's, really interesting. It's, it's interesting thing. for film nerds like us. <laughs> We've all been sitting in rooms uh, thinking about life for the last two years. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, out of it, you get films like this, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, it's, it's, it's very... It's it's just it's very sweeping and emotional and um, yeah it, it it really touched me I I I really loved this film as well I think even though they're you know two different sides of the same coin um, they both really you know Babylon and the Fablemans really kind of mm-hmm. are just excellent love letters to cinema. Um, Whilst acknowledging, you know, with with Babylon, it was acknowledging the kind of, uh, you know, the collateral damage and the the turmoil and some of the dirty stuff, and and with the Fablemans, it's like, you know, you 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 have to have your heart ripped out to make these stories sometimes, mm. and you know, there's an emotional core to to every filmmaker. Watching the movie, I think multiple times I was trying to hold back the tears because it just Spielberg is just the master of manipulation. I think that's the so, the whole thing that he is confessing, wearing his heart in his sleeve in this movie. He's saying, that is my hang-up, and I manipulate people best through the medium of film. You know, this yeah. the scene where it really stood out for me is obviously Sammy, when he joins a new high school, whenever the family moves again to California, he's really struggling to fit in there. He is used to a completely different environment, this is much more of your typical, you know, it's 1950s where we're seeing the, you know, the conception of the um, the jock spirit, the jock clique. And Sammy is getting bullied pretty badly. And he finds a way to tap in his control where he can't be physical towards those bullies. He manages to do it through film. And there's this incredible scene during the prom where he is confronted by the guy has been bullying him this whole time um, because of a video that they shot about the summer and he shoots the bully in a way that is very actually complimentary towards him, which absolutely baffles him. He confronts him and says, why the hell did you make me look so good? I've been horrible to you this whole year and you made me look like I'm some sort of golden god. Mm-hmm. And Sa- Sammy lays on the table and says, you're an ass, you're an asshole. I made you look good because... I'm skillful. Um, yeah. But he's also, he also doesn't know why he's done it. He's like, I've done it. I know mm. how to, but like, is it because I want you to like me or is it because, you know, I can. And uh, it's, it's a really interesting kind of, um, it's a really interesting kind of look into the mind of Spielberg. Um, yeah. And I think the film is very much because it's his young, young years to, you know, teenage, um, he can put these things together, but he doesn't always fully understand it yet. And I think obviously the 
the final kind of scene is is a uh, is a move towards that direction of like you know how to put these things together, but you need to understand them as well. So we are now going to go back to a series that we've been uh, running for the last few episodes and probably for a lot of the year because a lot of films to get through. Uh, <laughs> we are going through our blind spots of the BFI Sight and Sound Greatest Films of All Time list that was released at the end of last year. We are... Is this our fourth film, Chris? Our fourth blind spot as we go from 100 down to 1? I believe this is the fourth movie we have talked about from the list. Yeah, this is quite interesting because I think this is it's probably the oldest prison escape movie I've seen. I, I, have we seen older than this? I mean, like I know we've seen a lot of prison escape movies from America and the US releases, but I've never seen like a European uh, French language um, type of film. And this one's based on true fact. I mean, this is what this movie kind of prides itself at on is it stripped down realism and that's the thing that really kind of drives this movie forward it's it's a movie about a captured french resistance uh, fighter uh, who during the second world war basically constructs and engineers this daring escape because death is all around him he is witnessing other pow's inside this prison being picked off one by one his neighbors his um guys across the hallway who you know, admittedly doesn't really talk to, but there's an air of death. People are disappearing left, right, and center. And he knows he's pretty high. He's a pretty high caliber prisoner and he's on the chopping block and he's got to do something about it. And this is a really good testament of the human spirit of what somebody would do to survive, you know, what, what it means to take action and outsmart the bad guy. And, um, I, I I had a great time with this. Um, not classically entertaining. Um, it's quite stripped down, and it's really about the process of how he escaped and the mechanisms of that. Um, but I find it very, very intense and very subdued. I Yeah, I, I thought it was a very interesting experience. Yeah, I, I think it, it, it is very interesting because, like you said, it is, it's stripped down to the barest elements of what we would now call a prison break movie. Um, I think being based on a book is it's it very much is an adaptation of a book, uh, complete with voiceover throughout the whole thing. I know that's a very French thing as well to do. Um, I did like it, but you know, reading directors' accounts of like why this film blew their mind and why they uh, were so inspired by it, I didn't get that feeling. I I, I liked what it was doing. Um, but I wasn't I wasn't bored over by it, and and maybe that's something to do with the fact that like we do get like several Prison Break films a year. Half of them are okay. You get the odd one which are pretty good, and <laughs> the rest are rubbish. Um, and you know it's, I mean, it, what was it nineteen nineteen fifty six? So you yeah, know, this could have been one of the first of its kind. You know, it it, it might have been at the time setting a, a you know a. a you know, a barrier of like, this is what a good prison escape movie is. Maybe with my jaded eyes, I was just like, yeah, I've, I've seen this before. Um, and, and it's difficult to like rewind sometimes and think like, what was this like to audiences um, at the first time of seeing it? Love the simplicity, love 
love the Frenchness. I just it's something about <laughs> watching old French black and white films. It's so comforting. I don't know why. Uh, it's a beautiful language, I guess. Um, and just it is a beautiful language. I love the simplicity, but I wasn't grabbed. I wasn't truly grabbed by it. Um, mm. Thought it was good, but not my favorite out of the blind spot films that we've watched so far. Yeah, I think we are so attuned to being used to the Hollywood style of prison escape movies. We think about things like the, you know, like Shawshank Redemption is as sort of like a benchmark for the melodrama of the prison escape movie. But it's very interesting to devolve here and look at something that is way more focused on the details. Um, the actual sort of, you know, we're seeing him chip away at the door with homemade tools and seeing the sort of analog nature, the step-by-step, you know, no thrills sort of nature of how he manages to construct this. And it's quite inspiring and interesting to see at the same time. I think it's very focused on characters. Um, the claustrophobia of this prison, I, when I think about this movie now, I, I just think about a box. And I think this movie is very boxy in the way that it's shot. Everything's very sh- tight and claustrophobic. Um, it, the sets and designs are very sparse. There's no sort of interesting visual to look at, which is very, which is right for a prison movie. You know, you want to get into the headspace of a character who is, you know, people around him are just dealing with isolation. Their their human sort of willingness is being tested, and some of them deal with it in interesting ways. Some of the characters he meets along the way. Um, their humanity is being tested on a constant basis and how he relates to them. It is very, it's very, very interesting using like Mozart music. I thought was really cool um, way of like heightening the emotion um, taking away that clinical sort of need. Cause I think, cause the character is spending a lot of time by himself. He isn't really talking unless it's, it's, you know, as you say, it is, um, it is narrated by him but there's no one really for him to bounce off of. So having this really intense Mozart music in the background is kind of compensating for the emotion that he can't really show on screen. Um, That's all sort of internal and bubbling. Um, Yeah, I I think the movie doesn't really ask a lot of you, even though it's quite educational in its presentation. It's it's quite entertaining. It's a lean 90 minutes and has Mm -hmm. a climax um, towards the end of the movie that is... Again, stripped down. Um, it could have they could have like linked into making that a bit more sensational, but it does such a clever thing by just removing the music, making all about the sounds. About a, there's only one or two guards standing outside, and we know that this is the guy's, you know, final obstacle. But it's no less intense. You know, you're still yeah. thinking like, when's the gunshot going to come? When is he going to get shot in the back? And we as a as an audience are going to be left devastated by you know watching this man's 90 minutes of trying to outsmart um the nazis only to be turned down but it becomes a real sort of like triumphant yet melancholy and Mm -hmm. you know still open-ended thing because we know (laughs) you know this is i don't know what year this is set in in the second world war uh is it specific we but we still know that there's still years of this to go along and there's many more people in his situation that are never going to escape um but it's, yeah, triumph, it's, it's triumph of the human condition. Yeah, it's a testament to human will. And um, yeah, it, it's one of those films. It's, it's so simple that it literally does 
what it says on the poster. <laughs> <laughs> a, man, a man did escape, yeah. <laughs> a man escaped. Uh, yeah. Nine minutes. Yeah. Good times. <laughs> well, not really good times, I guess, actually. I lie. <laughs> very, very insensitive, Alex. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Pretty, pretty, pretty bad times. Um, but we do what we can. Uh, I just noticed as well, Chris, whilst I was um, looking looking at Letterbox uh, for the for the director of A Man Escaped, um, they have put the next 150 films from the poll onto the list. We're we never going to hundred percent it now. <laughs> are you sure you don't want to watch 250 films? Uh, you know. And though saying that, obviously my percentage has gone up now because I think I've seen like 60-odd films on the 250 list. Okay. But yeah, we're just doing the top 100. We're doing the big one. We're doing the big 100. Um, yeah, I am we, sad we, I'm not going to see the 100% though at the end of it, which is, that's, I don't know, irritating me now. Well, we weren't going to see the 100% anyway. We, we've we had this off-podcast off discussion and anxiety about one of the picks on this top 100 list anyway. That... We ultimately are going to really struggle to get free, and and it's coming up very very soon. Um, do did you want to like introduce that the the Jean Luc Godard um pick? Yeah, histories do cinema. I have a little I have a little surprise for you on this podcast, Chris. Oh, is this like right? My birthday's not till November, you know. I did, but I, I <laughs> it's not for your birthday. Uh, <laughs> okay. I found histories do cinema on Oxfam. <laughs> The uh, second-hand charity store, and it, it was it was not cheap. But I was looking at the resale value of it, and if you want to get it anywhere else, and I was even looking in. Um, so my brother lives in Canada, so I was like, maybe I can get a copy in Canada, and then you know my parents going out there soon, they mm-hmm. can bring it back for me and stuff like that. And like everywhere's selling it for like eighty pounds equivalent in 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 these places so i found it for 45 pounds the biggest investment this podcast has ever had and i bought it chris and it's you coming it? all right we are gonna watch histories do cinema once i've checked it out i'll send it over to you you can check it out and then depending on how enamored we are by it I'll, i bought it yeah we'll resell it and we'll get our money back i'm sure because it's it's quite a commodity <laughs> Wow, that's a, wow! I, I, it's, a, it's a DVD. It's secondhand. You say fifty pounds this cost you? I forty-five pounds, and that's including delivery. Oh, you're brave to confess that one. <laughs> well, like um, I said, like I said, the the resale value alone, uh, we we might be able to make money. You know? Okay. <laughs> I'm this, sure. This I'm could sure. provide a profit. This could be the film angle's first profit. You could be like as featured on the film angle, the the, the version that Alex and Chris watched. Okay, well that's fine. Well, we'll have to talk about it later on in the series, though. We won't have to be able yeah, to talk about I don't... it in order. And it's and it's not even technically a movie, right? No, it's like seven episodes of. Um... It shouldn't well, be on the list. <laughs> It's like a, yeah, I don't understand. It's I had a, a quick look show. at the next list, and they they got um, 
they've got Twin Peaks on there, which doesn't make any sense to me either. That's a TV show. How can that be on the greatest films of all time? Well, not not um, Fire Walk but, with me. The TV show itself. Yeah, yeah. They're they're cutting corners. They're taking the piss. This <laughs> is the, the thing. Letterbox in the last couple of years, they started adding TV shows to like, like, and people were like, "Oh, I've logged the Mandalorian." I'm like, "That's not. This is not what this platform is for." <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree. I completely agree. Uh, however, Histories du Cinema by Jean Luc Godard is is on the list, and it's on the top 100. Okay, that one's probably not going to be in order because we're probably going to have to watch that you know, an episode every now and then, and then I'm going to have to send it over to you, Chris, and you watch an episode every now and then until we finish it. So that might be further down the line, but we are going to watch Histories Do Cinema. Don't say I'm not invested in the film angle, man. I put my money into the podcast. <laughs> you know what? I don't think it's really out of your interest to see this collection. I think it's all resting on you wanting to see the 100% completion tab. At the end of this list, you just which I'm not even going to get anymore. That. <laughs> which I'm not even going to get because they've added another 150 films to the list. Oh, so the, what you're saying? This list is now expanded to 250. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the what? But there's not just a separate list for the hundred still. That we can just like work off that. Does that make sense? Uh, well, not the list that shows up on the all-time letterbox stats. Oh, we might yeah. have to, we might have to talk to somebody about that. Someone's trying to sabotage us. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll definitely do the top 100 anyway. We're definitely sticking yes. to our guns there. Um, we Including got... histories do cinema. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're <laughs> we're not doing three years of this uh, <laughs> of this segment. So I, I think a year will be enough, <laughs> which is probably realistically how long it's going to take us. But no, I'm really enjoying this so far anyway. I think it's a really good venture. Um, it really just keeps us really watching more diverse things all the time, forcing us not just to watch the current releases. So I'm all up for it. I mean, yeah, histoire de cinema, bring it our way. Let's do it. Let's do it. Well, join us next time. I think our next films are Yi Yi and Ugetsu. I'm not sure if that's how it's pronounced. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you've seen them both, Chris. I am in the process of watching Yi Yi. It's a very long film. I've not had a lot of time. But we will definitely be talking about those films on the next episode of the podcast. Go follow us on Instagram, guys. We might have a TikTok by the time this episode's live. You no see, dancing. Join us we're, we're, not, we're not doing any dancing, though, right? We might be doing dancing. Okay, just stay tuned for me and Alex doing the floss very, very soon. Oh, man, the floss, come on. What is that's this? Like, that's like <laughs> <laughs> It's, we'll, I, be doing, I, we'll be doing the, the Megan dance. That's what we'll be doing. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Come join us there if we've got one live. Uh, but for now, listen to us on all podcast platforms and um, get your friends to join in. Absolutely. This has been the film angle for this week. <laughs> I'm Chris. And I'm Alex. Bye. 